You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. As I mentioned last week, it's easy to uh, fall into hyperbole, especially when you're standing behind the podium of the lectern like I am, and say, this chapter, wow, this is, this is one of the big ones in the whole Bible. Um, you could say that about so many of them, couldn't you? 1 Corinthians 15 is, is one of them. Um, uh, I was thinking about that this morning. We're reading the Nicene Creed and just how much of the creed even comes from this single chapter. The phrase, in accordance with the scriptures, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. All that is centrally placed here in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, the next to the last chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians being what you would call one of his occasional letters, which just means that he wrote it um, with a specific occasion in mind. It's obvious with both of his letters, there may have even been three letters to, uh, from Paul to the, to the church in Corinth. Um, the church there had written him and saying like, hey, would you address all these problems, all these questions? This is all going on and we need your help. And so we have these occasions that, that brought Paul back to his, uh, his papyrus, so to speak, and put his pen to paper. Um, and we have the blessing of his letters from first letter and second letter to the Corinthians. This is towards the very end of his first letter to the Corinthians. So that's enough stalling. Um, uh, getting into this, um, say what I hope my hope is for the for the class. I'm going to go back to John Barclay, the backside of the handout, his six perfections of gift. Or grace, going to stay with that a little bit, and then we'll really dig into into First uh, uh, Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. Um, hope for the series. Um, uh, I'm not sure why I went to this uh, uh, chapter, except uh, it is so central. I think maybe from listening to a lot of my classes, I get ideas from podcasts, and I think they were talking about this on a podcast once, and it sort of hits three levels, three really significant levels. One is an apologetic or a defense for Christianity. Um, Christianity, somewhat unique in the other religions or faith, traditions, philosophies that you might have about life and its meaning. Christianity can hang itself on uh, something we might even say empirical, empirically verifiable. As much as you can do that, uh, something that happened 2,000 years ago. Christianity centers itself. It hangs itself. There's a pun intended there. It hangs itself on the cross, on the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says, this really happened. And if you can prove that it didn't, well, then, we, then, then our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. Our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. Uh, and if our hope is in this life only, we amongst all are to be most pitied. Prove to me, Paul is actually saying, um, even 2,000 years later, that Christ has not been raised, and we're all going to Starbucks. You know, we don't need to be here. Um, and so it's an apologetic, because then the flip says, but if by the same criteria you're not going to dig into this, but many, many, many people have, uh, by the same criteria that you would look at anything from the ancient Near East, the ancient ancient times, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years ago, anything, that, uh, the ways that we uh, would assert that the person of Homer actually existed, for instance, and who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, 
You can say, like, well, how do we know that? You know, I haven't seen, you know, Homer, you know, on a, on a video somewhere. He's not showing up on my feed. Uh, and you can go through a certain process and, and, and have some, some uh, confidence that Homer actually existed, that he actually was a, a poet, um, and he actually wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. And if you can believe in that, well, you can believe with, you know, several uh, strata of greater confidence um, that the person of Jesus Christ actually lived, he actually died, and he was fully dead, three days dead. He actually rose from the dead, not a swoon, not, um, uh, not the disciples switched the bodies, but he actually rose again from the dead and then ascended into heaven. And the same confidence that you can have that Homer or um, Julius Caesar or uh, this piece of pottery is from the Byzantine Empire, those same processes which we use to apply um, in, in, in those instances, we can bring that to 1 Corinthians 15. So that's the first. I need to hurry up now. Uh, the second, um, as I mentioned, just with it's, it, this forms so much of our creedal faith. It's just a doctrinal cornerstone for so many pieces that we have. And Paul's going to really hit that hard today in the first seven verses, or 12 to 19, so seven verses. He'll have seven different things. If the, there is no resurrection from the dead, then all these things aren't true. We're going to hear that in just a minute. It forms so much of our doctrine. But most of all, if you know me, you know this is kind of where my heart rests and thumps. There's the apologetic level, the doctrinal level, but really it's the pastoral level. I mean, there's good reasons why we read this at funerals, um, why we have hope here, actual, living, tangible hope for those who are suffering. Uh, either from this world, um, uh, from something they did or didn't do, said or didn't say, as criminals and lawbreakers, or just from the weight of sin uh, as we groan as in the pains of childbirth, waiting and waiting and waiting. Happy Advent, everybody. Waiting and waiting and waiting for the Son of God to be revealed. Um, pastorally, Paul has a word here. He's coming to you, and he's coming to me with something real and substantial as relief. So, so that's what we're doing. Turning over um, the six, uh, and this is really a handout. I just was reading this again. John Barclay, a New Testament scholar, wrote this up so people could take it home if you wanted to. It's really kind of interesting. Um, gift and grace, same word in Greek, same word in the scriptures. Charis is typically how it's... Uh, uh, related, We get the word Eucharist from that. You can hear that in that word, thanksgiving. So grace, gratitude, thanksgiving, gift. All of these words play with each other. Um, uh, we don't hear it so much in the English, but in a lot of the other languages you might hear those roots. Uh, Barclay had a really interesting way to think about gift giving. Um, or our grace, whether that's divine gift giving, as we, um, as God gives gifts to, to us, either commonly or specifically to us as people, or even on a horizontal level, we're coming up into Christmas and the gift giving season and all that. You can think about this, and as he called them perfections, which just means if you draw them all the way out to their end, and you think about six different ways that you could can begin to imagine grace, uh, our gifts. Um, Turn my page and rather go by uh, by memory here. 
um, superabundance, singularity, priority, incongruity, efficacy, non-circularity. Uh, breaking those out, I think I put this in a little sentence underneath there. Um, today, just to briefly highlight in three minutes, different ways of thinking about it. Although the giver, especially from a divine sense, God being the giver of all good gifts, um, what do you have that you did not receive? Paul again will ask us from God. Uh, the giver is implicit in all these. You can break these down and think amongst these six. Some one has to do more with the giver, God, singularity, that he singularly gives good things to his people. If you want to draw that all the way out, um, as some do, and not you don't have to. You don't have to draw this all the way forward. Uh, but if you wanted to, you could think about that aspect of God. Um, you could think about the gift. What qualities of the gift as it's super abundant, it's lavish, it overflows. Um, it's just more and more and more. And you, it knows no bounds. As far as the east is from the west, so enormous is the scale, the size, and the grandeur of the gift or the grace. And then also the priority that God gives first without any consideration of, um, uh, of well, now it's moving over, um, that God gives first. He's the first mover. He doesn't do it in response to anything else, but God being the only free agent, as it were, having a free will, truly unbound, able to do what he wants to do, God gives just because that's who he is. It's a priority to him. It comes prior to anything else. You can think about the recipient. That would be us. Um, and the incongruity um, that the gift is in measure, is in direct sort of uh, an inverse proportion to the recipient of the gift. I am so unworthy, and yet he gives anyway. The greater my unworthiness, um, the greater the gift, you might say. The more gifty is the gift when the more um, unworthy is the recipient. Or you could think about the response and two of the perfections that John Barclay identifies. Um, the efficacy and the non-circularity of, uh, uh, of, of the whole gift-giving cycle. Um, the, the efficacy that the giver has in mind a certain end or purpose to the gift. Uh, and how well does the gift accomplish that purpose? Um, is it efficacious? Does it bring about the thing desired. Um, if God desires us to have faith, and it's a gift so that no man may boast, and he gives the gift of faith, does faith happen? Um, uh, some would say, absolutely. Gift only comes from, from, from grace. And others would say, well, mostly. But God looks down and he finds a certain quality in the, in the recipient. Not completely incongruous, and it's not completely efficacious that there's a decision to be made after satisfaction or some, you know, you know, I'm really, really, really sorry, God, for what I did. Now it's not quite fully incongruent, and God isn't quite, um, and the gift isn't completely efficacious. The receiver has something to do with it. That's how you draw this out, and it makes us think, what do we think about gift upon gift or grace upon grace? Um, or, again, the non-circularity, the tit-for-tat. And again, not every, ordinary gifts don't all have, not, ordinary gifts aren't all perfected in all six. So we're coming up on Christmas. This isn't a rail against, you know, um, I give you a gift, and you're like, oh, I have your gift right back here, and you 
oh, see, here it is, you know, and so that sort of thing. It's a circuit. There's something really wonderful about that. Um, of course, we also are aware of how tiring that can be if it just keeps going around. Thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, no. Circle and circle and circle. Um, the perfected gift fully and completely erases absolutely the quid pro quo. There is just the gift, and it goes. And so it's just a question, and maybe we'll, I'll think about it some more this week, and we can come back to this next week. What about you? How do you resonate with these different perfections, these different drawing out to the ends of, uh, of grace? It's incongruity, um, which is probably one that I emphasize the most, um, which isn't a surprise. It's sort of the, the greatest Protestant emphasis, you would say. Um, I draw that sort of out of the Reformation and the Catholic. You would have merit and satisfaction, you know, go to the priest, um, and once you have, have a certain amount of contrition that could be raised to a level of satisfaction, do six Hail Marys, and then God gives the gift. I'm not trying to pick, but that's how the system works, the gift-giving system, and it helps us make sense of either on this level or that one, especially when we come to a text like 1 Corinthians 15, which we can turn to now. We'll flip that over. Just take that home. Use it to light a fire tonight if you want to, or you know, put it in the back of your Bible and think about it. Um, let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is, expect, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. This gets confusing, I know that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, 
I fought with beast at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So we're landing off tonic today, but it will, it will come back uh, next week. So I've had this conversation with several people over the years. Um, they can believe that Christ rose from the dead. But the resurrection of the dead, I believe, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, the last line of the creed. That's a hard thing for some people to get their head around, um, that you and I will die, be buried, and then uh, when Christ comes again, we will rise up out of the graves um, somehow with new bodies, um, the, the, the corporal resurrection of the dead. Um, that's what Paul is talking about when he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. That's you and I and all the saints for all the thousands of years before around the globe who have died. That somehow, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, there'll be a reconstitution and a, brought, and a bringing back to life. Your God is Too Small is a great little book by a guy named J.B. Phillips. And it's a great phrase. Um, Here's the invitation for the next couple of minutes. Is your God too small? And here's the answer. Yes, <laughs> so is mine. My quote, God is too small. God is always bigger. And if our hang-up is somehow, you know, a little bit personal here, some of us just buried my father-in-law, um, our father, some others, ashes. A lot of us looking around the room. Have to, um, a lot of funerals this year, a lot of death this year. How is God going to bring from ashes remains uh, a new body I don't know but is God big enough to do that that's the question can God take scattered bones my femur my femurs over here my cranium's over here part of my fingers over there you know scattered you know east west north and south and somehow figure out a way to bring all that back together like in Ezekiel 37 and reconstitute me for the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, that's what Paul is wanting to say here. It's like, we don't know how, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. The people that we have lost, we will see again in the new heavens and the new earth. When Jerusalem comes down, we have that hope. If we have hope in this life only, we amongst all are most pitied. That's where Paul's pastoral word wants to come to each one of us today and say, like, it's okay. It's okay. The Lord, your God, is not too small to do something that we have no idea how it's going to happen. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And just as God, for the first time in Genesis 1, when he just spoke, things came into existence, and then he got his hands dirty. He took his hands, and he put them into the mud that he made. And he, out of that mud, he drew Adam. And then he breathed into Adam. Somehow, something like that. Because we're going to hear Paul say, and Jesus is the second Adam. Just as the first one came out of ashes and mud and dust and breath and ruach and spirit of God, so also in a way that we won't know. But mark this, now hear this. Yes, it will happen. Yes, it will happen. So is your God too small? 
we say this to our shame. Verse 34, yes, I say this to your shame. Wake up out of your drunken stupor. Yes, of course we don't see things as they actually are, but God does. And He's going to show us now as in a mirror dimly, but one day face to face. Uh, and you will see and know, even as now you are fully seen and fully known, how God will do these marvelous things. So, he starts off here in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And he wants to say this. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. He says that in verse 13 and 16. Um, our, preaches again, our preaching is in vain. Verse 14, your faith is in vain. Vain there is a great word. Empty is the is the word there same word that we use in philippians 2 and and uh and 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 christ emptied himself that's that same word your faith our preaching is empty there's a box but inside there's nothing no content and your faith is empty um it's a box but inside there's nothing if there is no resurrection from the dead we misrepresent God. Um, that's in verse 15. We are still in our sins. Verse 17. Um, those who have died have perished. They're truly just gone, gone, gone. Like, no more. That's verse, what, 19. Uh, and we amongst all to be pitied. Um, we are les miserables. We are the miserable ones. We are the pitiable ones. Um, if there is no resurrection from the dead. But God, but he can't leave it there. Um down, um, let's just skip all the way through to verse 20. There are some, we can call them the pantheons of, of Paul's butts. Where, in, like in, uh, I wrote these down. I gotta, I'm going to make sure I get these right and not just go from a memory here. Uh, here in, in verse 20, but in fact, but in reality, but in truth, but hear this. Christ has been raised from the dead. And so if all those consequences, those seven things, you're still in your sins, your faith is futile, those who have died have actually perished. That's all if there is no resurrection of the dead. But Christ has been raised. So all that are, is not true. You are not still in your sins. Our preaching is not empty. Your faith is not empty. The dead, have not, the dead in Christ and those who belong to Him have not perished. Um, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We hear these other great but now, but gods out of Paul, like in Romans 3. For by the works of a law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, Paul says in Romans 3.21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe or earlier in 1 Corinthians. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will, inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Such were some of you. But you now are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Or perhaps most famously in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God... I always hear Robert Smith say that, the preaching professor at, at Beeson... But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. Um, and so we hear in the same vein of Romans 3 or 1 Corinthians 6 or Ephesians 2 here in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, just being the first one, will be the second fruits. So as in the first Adam, and now, uh, so in the first Adam, all have fallen, uh, I'll follow him, that's us, in the same way of, 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 of sin. Now in Christ being the second Adam, but the first fruits of the, of the resurrection of the dead, will follow that. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by one man came death, that's first Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, Christ the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ uh, shall all who belong to him be made alive. A word about falling asleep. Um, what a beautiful phrase that Paul uses here. Um, very appropriate. Um, not euphemism. I've sometimes we'll talk about uh, how I don't like, and no offense here, I don't like to speak of death in, in the euphemism of passed on or passing away or something else like that. That's Mary Baker Eddy. That's Christian science that we've passed from this material body into the true existence of, of the spiritual realm. It's very Platonic, um, if you remember Plato and all that stuff. That's not it. That's not what Paul's saying here. So appropriate. Fall asleep. Because what do you do when you fall asleep? You wake. And we have fallen asleep in this world to be awoken by the Holy Spirit. By somebody you, who, I don't know who, I don't know how, but awoken in a new day, in a new dawn, in a new place. This is very much out of the Lord of the Rings where Frodo wakes up, if you like this, and all of a sudden he looks up and there's Gandalf, and there's Samwise, and there's all the others, the fellowship of the ring all around him. Uh, I, this is offline, and whatever the, the place was and, uh, with the elves and, the, and that, the place which resembles the new heavens being awoken in a new day, in a new place, by uh, where all things now are well. Uh, here's the hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, so also by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. I hope you hear the hope just swelling up in you. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So let's move quickly. Um, but each in his own order, um, just the ordering of things, um, the proper ordering of things, not the inordinate um, order of things, which is the way of the world now under sin. Um, to be inordinate, the ordinals, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, now it's fifth, fourth, second, third, fifth, or whatever the words are. Christ puts them back in order. The first order of things. Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end, the parousia, where... Uh, the timekeeper comes out and says, time, you know, time itself goes away. Um, the, the playwright comes out and says, the play is over. Reality is now here. Uh, and then comes the end. What a, what a thought here. When Jesus now delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Here, Dad. I didn't lose one that you gave me. Here's your kingdom. Properly ordered. Now your reign can begin. Um, shalom. Peace after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Um, for time, I'm not going to go 
closely into all the he's and all that. It gets hard to follow. But God has put all things in subjection um, under order. Um, subjection here just means put in its proper place. It's a military term. You know, sergeant, corporal, private, you know, everybody's in order, everybody's ranked well, in subjection under his feet in the proper order. But when he says, and all things are put into the proper order, it is plain that he, Christ, accepted him who put all things in subjection <coughs> under himself. But when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God the Father, who put all things in subjection under Christ, that God may be all in all. Everything to everyone is another way that we could put that. Um, there seemed to be, in verse 29, uh, this is not the way I wanted to end it, um, uh, a strange practice. Paul's not condoning it, but he's just noting it. Otherwise, if, if the dead are not raised, then even this ridiculous practice which I hear among you, that people are, having, uh, are being baptized on behalf of somebody who's already died, if I can get that pastorally, what a pleasant, what a, what a great idea. If you have an unbelieving spouse or sibling or great, great, great uncle, and you got baptized on their behalf, a vicarious or a proxy baptism, it seems like maybe something like that is happening. This is one of those places we really don't know what Paul's talking about. That's the best guess. And he's just saying, like, whatever you believe about that, if the dead are not raised, then why are you even doing that? That's just Ouija. That's just wish. That's just wish. Uh, if the dead are not raised, why are people baptize, baptized on their behalf? And then he just goes on. We're in, why, am I, why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm in danger every hour. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ. I die every day. I mean, I'm under such uh, danger. You know, I've been whipped, uh, you know, 39 times, um, been shipwrecked. You know, all the things that he goes about in Second Corinthians, his whole biography. He's basically saying, if the dead are not raised, why am I here? Why am I going through all this? Um, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, he's right. Let's be Epicureans. Let's join Dave Matthews. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, why are we busy doing this? Um, and then the word comes out. Two words, word of law, word of promise. If you're in Colossians class, we, we, we're here about this. Do not be deceived. Stop being seduced. Bad company ruins good morals. Remember the whole part of 1 Corinthians. Maybe you don't. That's fine. 1 Corinthians 5. What does he say? I hear there is a sin amongst you that's, that's not even practiced amongst the pagans. Now he's kind of wrapping this up. Bad company, who you associate with, um, the, the people you're around, saying the dead are not raised, that's the root of your problem. That's why things aren't going well for you. Uh, wake up. There's the word of repentance. We can't turn a page in the scripture without somehow a word of repentance coming around. Coming to your senses. Wake up. See what's truly true, really real, actually actual. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Stop sinning. Don't go on sinning. Leave sin alone. Some of you have no knowledge of God. He could say, for some of you, your God is too small. I say this to your shame so that you may be raised up with Christ as one who belongs to Him. Not because your God, quote-unquote, is too small, but because the actual God is so big and so gracious and so 
God, that he can do all things, and you will not be separated from him, not even death, the last enemy, but which has fully, finally, and completely been annihilated. And then Paul's about to start soaring again, where he lapses into poetry. Where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? That's what we have to look forward to next week. So, So with that, that's probably a good ending. Let's pray. Take these words, Lord, feebly offered, and uh, uh, by your grace, Lord, um, perfect it uh, and bring it to an end that is helpful um, to each one of us here. Raise us uh, with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.